0: I'm glad I'm an alcoholic. It's good to be here tonight. Most of all, it's good to be sober. Uh, probably the only thing you're going to hear out of me that I really know for sure tonight is that this program works and it works good. And the reason I know that it works good is because I'm standing up here tonight. And tonight, without a doubt in my mind, I know where I should be. You know, I should be drunk. I should be loaded. Or at least I should be on some jail bus headed back to a penitentiary someplace, strapped down to a net house gurney or dead, that's where I ought to be. But because of rooms like this, people like you, uh, my life has gotten good beyond my wildest drunken dreams. You know, I'd like to say, so far i have totally related with everybody that's been at this podium tonight. Uh, I really related with the lady that read chapter five. I recognize that attitude right away.
1: <laughs>
0: then the guy that got his one-year cake. He talked about those uh, correctional facilities. I totally identified with that. And then the five-minute, the five-minute five speaker. You know, uh, that's what I love about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous you know I I have found miracles in here I'm one of those guys that I see the miracles in alcoholics and animals and I'm one that has to see them and I have to see them in you so I know that they're still happening for me I'm a very self-centered person Uh, I've been given the gift of sobriety and I'm the type of guy that I want to be rewarded for taking the gift When you told me here that I had a disease called alcoholism, when I got here, I wanted a paycheck for staying sober. (laughs) I thought, you know, I always thought somebody owed me something all my life. And I really thought somebody owed me something when I showed up here. And it took some years around here in this fellowship uh, and, and good sponsorship and old timers that made me become accountable for my actions. And I was the one that was responsible, you know, for what I did and and my feelings and what was going on with me. I want to welcome the newcomers and welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hope you find your what I found here. And I hope you can find one of them old timers like I had when I first showed up here, and I cared a lot more about my life than he did my feelings, because I had one of those sponsors that hurt my feelings a lot, <laughs> and he didn't give a damn about how I felt but he cared a lot about what I did. And I have one of those same kind of sponsors today. He doesn't really care about too much how I feel, but he's still concerned about what I do. And tonight I thought I was going to get a free pass down here, and, and I knew I was going to be able to lie a little bit because I didn't bring anybody with me, and my sponsor wasn't going to be here. And I'll be damned if he didn't show up at the break. <laughs> And now here I am, I'm stuck. <laughs> I had my first drink of alcohol at the age of 13 years old and the party was on. And you know what, And alcohol did magic things for me. You know, it, it just did from my very first drink. I loved the effects of alcohol. I loved how it made me feel. I loved how, it, you know that I could do things that I couldn't normally do. And alcohol did that for me for the very first time I picked it up. It was like, for the first time in my life, I was okay. And you know what? I didn't forget that feeling. And I drank every chance I got from then on. And the party, like I said, it was on from the time I was 13 years old, till I crawled through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous at the age of 37. And I drank as much as I could, as hard as I could, as often as I could, and I used a lot of other things in between there and that. uh, Just for as long as I could. I say, you know, I heard that word surrender around here a lot. And I don't know if I've ever surrendered to anything in my entire life. You know, I think I have pushed it till I just wear out. You know, and then when I'm totally worn out, I guess you can call that surrender if you want to. But that's what it took for me. I had to take it to the very bottom. And uh, I know today, if there had been one person left in my life that would have picked me up and fixed me one more time. If there would have been anybody that would have done that for me, I would have died. You know, for me I had to run them all up. By the time I got to this fellowship, there was nobody that gave a damn about me. Not even the people I owed a hell of a lot of money to. They knew I was going to drink myself to death, or I was going to get shot, or you know, they didn't have to. They didn't have to fool with me because they knew the end for me was coming soon. And I'm going to tell you what: if you would have told me that was, uh, I crawled into this program th- this last time. Uh, March the 26th, 1983, and if you would have told me then that uh, I would have been able to have stayed clean and sober up until this very night, I would have told you you were nuts. Because I didn't come here to stay clean. I didn't come here to stay sober because I knew I was one of those guys that had taken over that line. And we talk about an invisible line in here, but my line was a lot different than that one. That I had been places and done things that you don't get to come back from. And when I heard you talking about God in here, I knew I was screwed. I'm also a recovering Southern Baptist.
1: <laughs> and I was
0: screwed at the age of 13 years old. Because what they said in there, if you haven't done it, if you just thought it even, like God was keeping score. And by the time I was 13, if I hadn't done it, I certainly had thought it. So you know what? And I, and I carried that concept of God throughout the rest of those years and it took me and Alcoholics Anonymous a long time to undo those old ideas about God and I don't have that swear card keeping God in my life today you know I have a very kind loving forgiving and I have a God that has a sense of humor also I think my God doesn't you know he knows me he knows me real good and I I, he knows my heart and thank God he knows my heart because I don't know if I'm ever going to get good around here I didn't come here to get good. You know, I came here uh, a very, very sick person. And little by little and inch by inch, I started to get different. And I started to heal. And things started to change in my life. And for me, it happened very slowly. It didn't happen overnight. You know, when I drank, my, when I drank alcohol for the first time, I set out on this path. And I, hadn't, I did not have a clue where alcohol and drugs eventually were going to take me and what they were going to do in my life. You know, they were a good thing as far as I could tell, and I loved them. And you know what? I'm also a product of the '60s and '70s, and I don't know if there's a lot of people here from the '60s or not, but I can tell you this: if you can remember them, you weren't there.
1: <laughs> that's how I
0: live, you know. I love that time and space, you know. I loved it, I absolutely loved it. I could do things in that I could do things in that time that you know. Uh, people were getting jobs and you know I dropped out of high school uh, uh, six weeks before I was to graduate in my senior year because alcohol and drugs became a lot more important to me than anything that school had to offer and I had been offered several scholarships to go play baseball and you know what? I turned all of that down for the right to drink and that's how much of a hold of me at that age that alcohol had a a hold of my life and people were trying to tell me then that I had big problems that I had drinking problems and I had drug problems, but you couldn't have told me that. I didn't believe it. They were all my You know, that was my answer to everything. To every feeling I've ever had. That's how I, that's how I covered him and that's how I buried him. I buried him in alcohol and drugs. Life was too painful for me. And I was having a lot of fun. I was making a hell of a lot of money and I was living that dream. You know, I had a lot more money than my father who worked hard every day. I came from a good family. I had a hard-working mother, a hard-working father, and I had a good home. I was raising it, you know, with everything that you think a kid would need to turn out okay. And I don't know why I had a sister that was perfectly fine, you know, and we were raised with the same stuff. We heard the th- same things, kind of, and she was one of those that could always, you know, she was always good, and I hated her. Because <laughs> I never could be like that. I was, she was just one of those that did everything perfect, you know But I came out of this home and when I I just I just was a rebel from the gate and uh, By the time I was uh, I had dropped out of high school I had my hair was down to my ass and I was running drugs out of Mexico and I was hooked up I was making a hell of a lot of money I, the party was on and like I said It was the 60s and I was just enjoying life only thing is that you know what when you're doing all that stuff every once in a while it gets interrupted they called it intervention around here today but that's what I come to know jails and institutions as you couldn't have told me that at the time you know nor could you have told me the reason I was locked up it was because of drugs drugs and alcohol if you would have told me why asked me why why are you locked up I would have told you it was a shitty lawyer (laughs) Had nothing to do with what I was doing you know, and you know what, I was, a, I was a violent, violent person. And because of that, I was going in and out of institutions a lot, you know. And I discovered something in Alcoholics Anonymous. When you act like an animal, and you live like an animal, they put you in a cage like an animal. And you know what, with me, they had the right guy. <laughs> and there's nothing worse in this world than to be standing in front of a judge knowing they had the right guy and knowing there ain't no way around that. <laughs> and it's really bad when they get to know you on a first name basis. <laughs> but that's how my life went, and that's where alcohol and the drugs had took me down this path. And by the time I was 22, 23 years old, I had been in and out of institutions quite a number of years, and I was getting tired of that lifestyle. So when I got out the last time, I looked around and it looked like all my friends were married and, you know, they were buying homes and raising families, and and I'm a pretty smart guy, I figured, you know what, that's what I gotta do, I gotta find her, I'll get the house, we'll have the family, and I can be just like them. So that's what I did. I looked around my neighborhood and I found me the sickest one I could find to marry me at the time. (laughs) And I promised her the world and then I took her on the life of a rip-roaring addict and alcoholic for the next seven years and uh, cause, you know what my using didn't stop my drinking didn't stop and you know it's a progressive it's a progressive illness and I got worse and I had periods of time that I would be okay I could keep it together and kind of you know I'd be doing all right but the longer uh. The times became shorter in between the times when I was down. You know, and I couldn't keep it together. And she finally got tired of my stuff. And she got a divorce and went on her way. And I immediately went back because she had kind of kept things calm for me. You know, she would have healed me up and patch me up when I would come home banged up and skinned up. And and kind of keep things covered. And you know what, uh, when she left I went back to the streets real strongly again and started doing what I know how to do best and almost immediately I got busted and I went back to jail and by this time I'd learned how to talk to judges district attorneys and and all of that and I I talked my way and they didn't send me back to the penitentiary this time they sent me to a year in the county and while I'm doing that year in the county jail I'm thinking to myself you know I haven't been locked up in almost seven years and uh, it was hurt they kept that from happening so I know right away I better find her real quick again
1: <laughs>
0: and that's what I did I found number you know number two came rolling into my life mean she was a hell of a lot smarter than the first one she stayed one year
1: <laughs>
0: and that was the end of that relationship that was forever <laughs> And this time, you know what, I went back out and I started doing things and, and uh, I had a friend that I had known a number of years. And her husband and I used to get loaded together. We used to shoot dope together and drink together and party together and we were both just party people and we had a hell of a good time. And, and this lady and I had become, you know, we had become friends. And Dennis and uh, their daughter had been killed in a motorcycle accident. And Barbara and I had kept in contact through the years. I would check in, stop in, and see how they were doing from time to time. And then one happy St. Patrick's Day, I was doing what I do. I was on the big party, and I happened to run into Barbara. She was bartending at the White House in Laguna Beach. And I walked in, and there she was. And we were happy to see each other. Like I said, we were friends. And I got drunk, and she got drunk, and she took me home to her house. And... You know, we, I, I stayed there for the next 18 years. <laughs> and she had three kids, and I had just one child that I had, uh, I had sent to his grandparents in Missouri because uh, I couldn't take care of him. You know, uh, I left out one wife in between Barbara. I just remember the one I had the child with. She drank, and we used together, and she drank like I drank, and she used like I used. Remember, we had a kid born in his life, and it was too bad for him because he had a father that could not and would not take care of him, and I couldn't. Uh, we were both strung out, and we were both real sick, and I shipped him to grandparents in Missouri. And thank God he had good grandparents, and they raised that kid, and he stayed there for the next nine years of his life while I was out there doing what I do. That's not a story tonight that I'm proud of. That's just how it was for me. Anyways, Barbara and I ended up hooking up. And I brought that kid back after a little while from his grandparents. I brought him back with me and and Barbara had these three kids. And so I have four kids now running around this house. And I tried to, I thought, you know what, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to go to work. And I'm going to stop doing the drugs and I'm going to stop living in that way. And I did for a little while. But uh, I got bored with that lifestyle real quick. I don't like to work. I hate that. And I don't like it today, but I do it. You know, and I, I, was, I learned that in Alcoholics Anonymous, how to do that. But anyways, I started doing what I was doing when I was raising these four kids, and, and I'll tell you how it was around my house. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this drunk thing, I don't think. If you came to my house, it wasn't easy to come in the front door because it was always off the hinges where I kicked it off.
1: <laughs>
0: and if you walked in, there would be me and six or seven of my friends sitting around a kitchen table with a punch bowl full of cocaine and a refrigerator full of booze. And these four kids that lived in that house, they would get up in the morning and uh, they, would eat their, uh, they would eat their breakfast in the living room because me and my friends were at the kitchen table. And then they would trot off to school and they couldn't bring any of their friends home after school because me and my friends were sitting in there doing what we do. And then they would eat their dinner in the living room that night because me and my friends were still sitting there. Then they would wake up in the morning and they would eat their breakfast in the living room because me and my friends were still sitting at the table. (laughs) Then they'd go to school and then they would come home and then they would eat their dinner in the living room because me and my friends were still there. And then they would wake up in the morning <laughs> and then they would eat their breakfast in the living room and then they'd go to school and then they came home and they'd eat their dinner in the living room because me and my friends were still there. And I'm going to tell you something, after about six or seven days in a row of that uh, things start getting weird. <laughs> So me and my friends all dressed the same way. You know what? We all carried guns. We were all violent. We were all nuts. And the next thing you know, the punch bowl's getting down there. And I'm a pig. I don't like to share. When things start getting low, I'll share with you for a little while. But when it starts getting down there, I ain't sharing no more. And I'm trying to get these guys out of my house. And they're not wanting to go. You know how we are because they're like I am. They're still shitting the punch bowl. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, you know, what things are really getting weird and there's guns going off in my house. I got four children sleeping in the next room and i am tell you what, there's guns going off in my house. And I finally get these guys rounded up and out of my house and gone. And then I stay up for a couple of more days to, uh, like, patrol my neighborhood. <laughs> I was like my... I was my own neighborhood watch before they had neighborhood watches (laughs) and you know after days and days of being doing that and drinking and using the way I used uh, I had this big pine tree across the street from my house and that's where they always were (laughs) and I don't know who they were but I know they were always over there behind that damn tree and I had these three big palm trees on my front lawn, and I used to crawl out there and I lay behind those palm trees with this 44 magnum, and that tree would be moving across the street, and I knew they were there in about 4:,, 4:30 4, in the morning, I finally see who they are, and I'm shooting. Now what that does for you, it gets the police to your house real fast. <laughs> Forty-four magnums at four o'clock in the morning are noisy. so here come the cops and by this time they know me like I said on a first-name basis and they come driving up and they're telling me, Lenny, put the gun down they got their bullhorns on, the lights are going and the neighbors are up because of the gunshots and and the cops are telling me, put your gun down put your gun down, I said, no, no, they're over there right over there behind that tree, I got them and they said, yeah, we got it, we got it and I said, no, they're over there this time, they're really over there go over there I'll back you up <laughs>
1: they, know they don't want your back
0: because this very night I don't know why they just didn't blow me away I don't know why but they talk to me long enough they finally get me to put the gun down and then here they come and you know what happens next they want to arrest me and I don't want to be arrested. So I have a ruckus in my front lawn, the neighbors are all up by this time, they're out there and the big show's on. And they finally get me arrested, the handcuffs on me, and off to jail I go. And then the next day, Barbara would come down and write a hot check for the bail bondsman, bail me out, and then we go home and we get to start the whole mess over again. And I just thought that was normal living. I thought everybody was doing, all my friends were doing that. And you know what? Uh, one night we had one of our little main events on a Saturday night on the front lawn. The cops came again. The funny thing that happened is that they took her ass off. Because <laughs> I was bleeding worse than she was. <laughs> but the next day I woke up and the telephone was ringing. And there was a sister-in-law calling me on the phone asking me, Do you know what you did this time? And I, said, I knew it wasn't going to be a nice story because the house was a mess. And she told me what had gone on and she said, why don't you guys get away from each other before somebody gets killed? And I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. And by this time I had sent that son again back to his grandparents in Missouri. And he'd been back there for probably a year and a half. And I hadn't seen him, hadn't talked to him. So I had this good idea. I'll just unload all this mess. I'll pack my stuff, I'll go to Missouri, I'll visit with my son, I'll see my my mother and my father. I'll rest up and then I'll be okay. And you know what? So that's what I did. I packed up. I made this little trip to Missouri. First, I took some stuff with me to Missouri. And I'd like to tell you tonight that when I got there, I went to see that kid and went to visit my parents, but that's not what I do. I hit that little town of Springfield, Missouri, and I go to the part of the town where I'm comfortable in, and I find people that drink like I drink and use like I use, and the party's on. You know what, and then the next thing you know, I'm gathering up a lot of money over there, and they go, you know what, everybody knows the best drugs are in Southern California, and I'm flying back out here to to cop and flying them back. And then the next 30 days, I was on a run that was just unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And uh, I ran out of money, I ran out of drugs, I ran out of everything all at the same time. And I had one friend in this whole world left that lived in Springfield, Missouri. I had met him on that vacation when I was back there to visit one year. And we had stayed friends. And he was a good guy. And he was still my friend because he wasn't around me very much. <laughs> and I showed up on a Sunday morning on the car. Uh, had just bought this house and he was just planted this nice new lawn. You know how they are? They're all nice about this high. They're really flush and green and... And when he walked out of his house Sunday morning, there I was with my old alcoholic truck, buried all four tires right in the middle of his lawn by his front door, drunker than hell. And he came out and he dragged me out of my truck and took me to his house. He got his wife up, he made coffee, and he started to talk to me. And he said, Lonnie, you know what? i watched you for the last 13, whatever it is, many years, drinking and using the way that you do. And if you don't do something about your drinking, you're going to die. And by this time, you know what, I didn't care. And I really didn't care. Dying was easy. It was living, it was hard. I already accepted the fact that, you know what, I was going to leave this world in some lousy, violent way. That I get in a shootout with a cop, or with a connection from taking your shit. And I was going to die that way. And you know what, I got gotten to the point that that was okay with me. I couldn't take that gun, stick it in my mouth, and blow my brains out. I didn't have that much guts. But I knew the other way, that was going to happen, and it it had become totally okay with me. Anyway, this guy says, you know what, if I can get you into a detox, would you go? And I said, yeah, I'll go. I didn't have any money, I didn't have any insurance, I didn't have any of that stuff, and I know nobody's taking me. And this guy called around this town of Springfield, Missouri, and he found a, a, a place that had just opened, only been open a couple of months, and it was a treatment facility very similar to Scripps McDonald's. And they agreed to interview me down there. Well, you know what, I had saved this one and a half gram rock of cocaine, and I had stashed it in this truck. So I on my way to the hospital, we got right to the hospital, come in his house, and that thing was crawling to me. I couldn't go in there without it. I thought I was gonna leave it there in case they did take me, I'd have something to get well with when I got out.
1: But I couldn't leave
0: it, you know? So I told Eddie, take me back to my truck, what was going on, he took me back to my truck. I got that deal. We went to the liquor store, we got some booze, and then I sat outside that hospital and smoked that last... of that shit, and drank that booze, and then we went in for the interview. And you know what, The director, for some reason, decided to let me in that place. (laughs) They took me down to the, you know, to get the medical stuff done, did my blood work, my liver enzyme count was so unbelievable, they sent me back to do another one. They said that's impossible, he would be dead. And when they sent me back to do the other one, it came back higher than the first one. <laughs> and they were like in shock. A year after I was clean and sober, I went back to that facility and to see the director and asked him, why did you let me in here? Because they never charged me a dime. They never they never charged me that one dime. And Jim looked at me and he said, Lanny we never had experienced anybody like you in this little part of the country before. We wanted to see what the hell was going to happen.
1: <laughs> you know, what happened was
0: they finally got me knocked out with the phenobarbital after about three or four days that they were trying to put me down. I couldn't sleep. I mean, I was armed and I was, and I was up. And they, were, they couldn't believe I wouldn't go down. And every time the little nurse would give me another shot of that shit, she'd say, this one's going to do it, honey. And I said, okay. (laughs) And we played that for like three days or however long. It was a long time. Finally, I did go to sleep. And when I went to sleep, what they did, they put me in this little room. And When I came to and I realized what was going on, I woke up and and I'm thinking, this is not a good idea. And I'm wanting to leave. The only problem is the room they had even didn't have a doorknob on my side.
1: <laughs>
0: and I started raising hell and I raised enough hell that finally these male nurses came down the hallway and, they, and, you know, I was beating on the door and they finally opened the door just enough for me to get my hands in and boom, out I came. And then we had a hell of a ruckus out in the hallway. And they finally got me shoved back into that room and the door shut. And uh, there was this nurse called Mama D who came down the hallway. And she she got them to open the door to let her in that room. They didn't want to let her in. They said, don't go in there. That guy is nuts. He will hurt you. And she didn't care what they said. She made them open the door, and then she came. And she walked right up to me and put her arms around me and held me like a baby. And she said, honey, it's going to be all right. And I don't know know what happened to me. But you know, something in the way that she did that, in her voice, or just that big hug that she gave me, she was a big woman. And then she said, now, you know what? You get your ass up there on that bed and behave. And I looked at this lady and I thought, lady, you know who you're talking to? (laughs) And she obviously knew who she was talking to because what I did was get my ass up on the bed and behave. (laughs) that lady stayed with me all night long until she was was over in the morning. And she said, Lonnie, I'll be back at 3 o'clock this afternoon. I went, I don't leave, don't leave. She begged me to stay. And you know what, I don't know why I stayed, but I stayed. And they did her, you know, their little 28-day program. And they reintroduced me one more time to Alcoholics Anonymous. Cause I'd been here before in 1979. <coughs> and you know what, AA will screw up your drinking and your using, in case you don't know that. If you're new in here, if you're new in here and you really don't want to get clean and sober, get out because they screw up your drinking and they screw up your using because you know what in 1979 the only thing i remember about the AA meetings that i went to is these old timers would tell me this we'll not guarantee you've had your last drink but we guarantee you'll never enjoy another one (laughs) 1979 to 1983 that's what happened to me i don't care what bathroom i was in i don't care what bar i was in i don't care where i was and what i was doing they have that AA clock in your head. And you know what, When things start to get bad, you know there's a place. And I knew that, that's what AA did for me. They screwed it all up for me. But anyways, I left that treatment facility. I came back to Southern California. Barbara and I took to living together again. And I started, uh, I didn't go to any meetings for a couple of weeks when I was here. And I got crazy. I got crazy. And the next thing you know, you know what, I got my gun in my boot again. I got a knife in the other boot. And because uh, when I left here, I, up, I left owing a hell of a lot of money, and I left owing money to people you don't write letters to and send a dollar a week. <laughs> and that fear started to come back. Anyways, I met this friend of mine, the Laguna Beach, that introduced me to this guy named Cliff from Ocean this little school teacher. And I called Cliff, and Cliff came to my house and picked me up for my first meeting in Ocean <laughs> And he's a little bald-headed school teacher. And and like I said, I'm totally nuts. I got this gun in my boot and I'm not happy about anything. And he came to pick me up. I started to get in the front of his car to go to the meeting. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting in the car. He said, no, you sit in the back. You're too stupid to ride in the front.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know
0: what? I want to tell you, I don't know. Probably some of you people know Cliff R from Oceanside. And I guarantee you, the only reason he's still alive and well is because that night I was so screwed up, I didn't know whether to shoot him or stab him. (laughs) And after that A&A meeting we went, and you know what? Something happened to me in that meeting that I didn't have to kill Cliff on the way home. (laughs) And I stayed, you know what? I wasn't that happy I was the most angry, angriest person you have ever met in your life. My sponsor didn't tell me to shake hands in these meetings when I got here. He told me to keep your hands in your pocket, put your ass in the chair, and sit down and shut up and listen. And I I hated it, I hated AA. The last place in the world I ever wanted to be was sitting in one of these places. And here I sat. And in case you don't know it, if you're new out there, AA is the bottom. There ain't nowhere else to go after this, where you're gonna go. (laughs) That's why I stayed. I didn't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> and you know what? Little by little and inch by inch. You know, I stuck around and, 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 and uh, I was so full of hate and anger and rage. And I kept going to meetings, but nothing was happening for me. So, you know what? I had to knock the edge off. I mean, I couldn't stand the feelings anymore and I wouldn't share them and I didn't know anything. And I started smoking a little social dope to knock the edge off. And then I did that for about six months, but I still came to meetings. And I know this is an AA meeting, but drugs are a part of my story. That's just the way it is. And uh, one, one time, six months later, after I started smoking this dope, I ended up with a needle in my arm one more time. And I'm going to tell you, if there would have been a bottle sitting on the table where I was that night, it would have been a bottle that wouldn't have made a damn bit of difference because I had to change how I feel, felt, and I had to change it right now. And that's what I did, is I shot some dope, and the minute I fired that off, I had enough AA in me from this time. And whatever little contact I had with any kind of a god, it was broken the minute that I fired that shit off, and I knew it. It hit me right between the eyes, like it was, like, somebody had hit me with a 2x4. And I knew it, I could feel it. And the next night, I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous, raised my hand again as a newcomer. And I started to go into some men's stag meetings. And I heard the funniest things in these men's stag meetings. And then we're talking about being afraid. And we're talking about being scared. And they we're talking about these feelings that were going on inside of them. And, and I even seen this guy cry. And I was embarrassed for him. But you know what? I kept going to those meetings. And you know what I found out? The guy that was had broke down that night and cried, I envied. Because he could do that. And I envy him today. the guys that were talking about fear taught me how to share about fear and being afraid and i discovered in here that all my life you know what all my life i was a terrified you know i always said i was an angry little boy that grew up to be an angry man what happened is i was an angry little boy that grew up to be an angry little boy and all my life i lived in terror and fear and the places where i lived my life you didn't talk about being afraid that you'd be somebody's wife real quick and you live the way that you had to live and you did what you had to do to survive. And you know what? And I started hearing these guys do that. And they, you know what? All of a sudden I could start doing that. And then all of a sudden things started to change for me. And I got this other sponsor. And you know what? <coughs> I was still, I had, I think, 90 days again. And I was on my way to this guy's house. I picked him up to go to a meeting in Long Beach this big book meeting I, he used to make me go to on Monday nights and, and I was still carrying my guns and we were on our way back from this meeting and I was like not delighted that night and this guy was messing around on the freeway with me and my sponsor was sitting on the other side of me and I told him hey roll that window down
1: <laughs>
0: and he rolled the window down and I told him lean back
1: oh. <laughs>
0: and he looked at me but he leaned back and I pulled my gun out and I shot this guy's back window out of his car. And my sponsor didn't even uncross his arms. He just... <laughs> like, he looked over and shook his head like that. And when we get to his house, he tells me, You know what, man? Saturday you bring me up all your weapons. <laughs> we have no business with them. So you know what, Saturday I brought him up my, all my weapons. And, uh, so I'm in his garage and we're putting these things away. and then, I figure we're all done putting my guns away, and he says, Lang, go get the one you're going to keep.
1: <laughs>
0: and it's like, how did he know that? You know?
1: <laughs>
0: and then I explained to him, though no, I have to have these because, you know, I stole all this money to these people, blah, blah, blah. And he says, no, what you're going to do this happening is you're going to go see the people you owe that money to. And you're going to tell him you're a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that there's no way you can repay that kind of money and you do with you whatever they're going to do with you, they leave you the hell alone. And you know what, that didn't seem like a good idea to me.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then he told me no weapons, I went with no guns, nothing. And I knew I wasn't going to walk out of there. But I had come to trust this guy and I did what he told me to do. And I went to see the guy that I owed the money to. And it wasn't about the money, trust me, they treated me like family, these people. And I told him my little story, and the old man looked down at me and said, I'm not going to kill you, and I don't know why. He said, but you better keep your ass over there in that A&A, because I'm going to be watching. And you know what, it's been like 17 years later, and I know he's still watching. (laughs) I don't stay sober because of that. But it (laughs) helps.
1: But he let me walk.
0: And you know what, I went back to the sponsor, and I couldn't believe that I got to walk out of there. And I went back to the sponsor, and I told him, how the hell did you know they were going to cut me loose like that? And he looked at me and says, I didn't.
1: <laughs> and that took my faith
0: in my sponsor for a while.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, I used to go on these little campouts with these guys, but a bunch of us would go out on these little campouts. We'd bring all of our weapons and guns. I didn't have no guns anymore. My sponsor had taken them all. And uh, on my third birthday, on my third year in sobriety, we were out on one of these campouts. And at the end of the campout, my sponsor came to me with a brand-new 44 Magnum and a shoulder holster and the whole nine yards, and he tells me, Here, Lenny, I'm going to give this to you. He says, I think you're well enough to have one of these back now. He says, if you do everything that's asked to you in an Alcoholics Anonymous for the next year, on your fourth birthday, we're going to let you have some bullets.
1: <laughs> That's how it went for me. But you
0: know that sponsor taught me about service and alcoholics anonymous and how to get busy and how to do things and, and how to become a part of and, and and I'm grateful for that. And three years ago I lost that sponsor. And uh, I had a heck of a time. He'd been my sponsor for thirteen years. And when Don passed away Uh, You know, know, we used to talk about, Don used to say this, when I go, I'm going to be sitting in the middle of an AA meeting having a smoke and talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what, and that's exactly how my sponsor left this world. he was sitting in the middle of an AA meeting having a smoke. And the funny part of it, there was two newcomers giving him, trying to bring him back. And that was Don. And he left this world with 36 years of sobriety. And you know what? I missed them, and I had a heck of a time with it. I've had a heck of a time with it for the three years. And uh, I tried to get different sponsors, and it just—it I had temporary sponsors, but it just wasn't working. And uh, about maybe six months ago, I finally uh, I got another sponsor. And you know, I got the sponsor I have tonight because he's exactly like the sponsor that I had before, in a lot of ways. That uh. My sponsor, Don, didn't tell me about Alcoholics Anonymous. He showed me about Alcoholics Anonymous. With his actions, that's what showed me. I can hear a lot of things in Alcoholics Anonymous. I hear a lot of stuff, a lot of good stuff. But you know what? I can see a lot better than I can hear. And I don't know, you know what happens, especially at a speaker meeting on a podium, because it always seems wonderful, and everybody's wonderful all the time. But what happens to me is I want to follow them home because I really want to know how they're living. And I had a sponsor that lived this program and he walked his program and he loved the fellowship about college and I he loved AA. And uh, I have a sponsor tonight that has the same outlook in this fellowship. You know, I lost the magic of AA for a while and I have a sponsor that's getting it back for me. He's helping me get back that magic. You know what, when I was new around here I heard, it's not what they were saying from these, you know, from meetings or from podiums, but I heard around here is that if I stayed clean and sober that I would have a brand new car, I would have a nice house, I would get a lot of stuff, I'd become a brain surgeon.
1: <laughs>
0: and that's not what they were saying, but that's what I was hearing.
1: <laughs> so you know what,
0: I went to work, I got a job, and I didn't use a drink that I didn't use, I went to meetings, I was involved in AA, and uh, I started to make money, and you know what, it took me about three years, four years maybe, three years, and I had the house, I had a nice house on the beach, and next year I was driving a brand new Cadillac, and next year I'm driving a brand new truck, and next year I bought another house, and I'm high rolling. I was a total success story in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came here with not a, I came in here broke. And you know what? In three, four years, I was a million bucks in debt.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> total success story. And I looked good. I looked really good. You know what And I heard in here all that time? It's an inside job. It's an inside job. But I didn't believe you. I knew if I had the Cadillac I had the pocket full of money and I'd hear these people talking all this spiritual stuff that I'd be spiritual too. That all that stuff was gonna get me okay. And you know what? I had all this stuff and I wasn't okay. And then what happened is I was eight and a half and almost nine years clean and sober and all that stuff started to go away. And I lost the houses and I lost the cars and I lost the money. And I was hearing in here, people were saying like, hey, if I lose my house, I lose my money and all my stuff and I stay sober, it's okay, you know? Oh shit. <laughs> then I noticed the ones that were telling me that still had their shit, you know. What I mean?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and when I got to my lowest of lows, I thought I can't get any worse than this, right? Uh I got some more bad news. I went to a doctor and uh, they gave me three years to live with no hope. They told me get your in orders. You got hepatitis C and cirrhosis of the liver and you have this blood disease and we can't do anything for you because the blood disease will not allow us to do any kind of surgeries because you will bleed to death on the table and there's nothing we can do. And I'm like, you know, I'm a little over nine years sober at that time. And I, man, I got angry. I got real angry with God. I got real angry with everything. And I ran to the sponsor. I moved to Portland, Oregon by this time. And I run up there and I tell him my big sad tale. Whoa. And Don was one of those. He listened to me for about a minute and a half. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, how long are you clean and sober? I tell him, a little over nine years. And he looked at me and said, then you've been nine years way overpaid, huh? I said, if God takes you out of here tomorrow, you've been had nine years of living you never should have had. So just be grateful for the time that you've had and what God has given you. And all you ever want more is more. You know, and that's really the truth. All I ever want is more. <clears throat> and that was not comforting to me at the time.
1: <laughs> but
0: you know what? I made peace with the God later on, not right away. It took me some time, but I made a peace with God. And the only thing I asked God for at that time was, you know what, if this is my fate and this is where I'm gonna go, give me the strength to go out of this world clean and sober and let me leave this world with some kind of dignity you know and I I just kind of trudged for a while and I ended up getting very sick and I had to go to a hospital and that I was down here at UCSD in San Diego and they took me in they did their little deal and their little test and then they came to me and they said who told you you had that blood disease I said my HMO God bless HMOs, I hope there's some in here tonight, because you need to pay closer attention. <laughs> this doctor looked at me and he, and he said, you don't have that blood disease. And then you know what? They started doing a little thing to me, interviewing doing their stuff that they set me up to have a liver transplant done. And I thought to myself, you know, what if I had gotten loaded? What if I had drank? How embarrassing I would have been, because I knew I would have died, I would have met God, and he said, hey, man, you know. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so you know what? Six years ago in April, they took me down to San Diego, and they slammed a the new liver in me, they told me I'd be for another 100,000 miles. <laughs>
1: take
0: the road and all that. And you know, once again, I'm going to tell you, it was you guys that got me through that, because at that time, it was like, When I went into the hospital, I was in there for eight weeks. And what you did was you impressed the holy hell out of UCSD Medical Center, is what you did. Because it wasn't me. They didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous when I went in. But I guarantee you they knew a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous before I left. (laughs) And it was because of you guys. You know what? My phone never stopped ringing from morning to night. I mean literally. It never stopped. And the people never stopped coming to see me. They brought me meetings. Uh, they had the cooks down in the kitchen bringing coffee up for us for the meeting.
1: <laughs> and it was just going on.
0: And uh, what an example you were. What an example you were of how, what this program is like. And I'm one of those kind of guys, you know what, people that would be coming to see me, some of them would be in $2,000 suits driving big Cadillacs and Mercedes, you know? And then there'd be a herd of Harley-Davidsons outside, you know how they park right on the lawn?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
0: they're coming down the hallway in all this leather. And they couldn't figure you guys out at all and they really couldn't figure you out when the head guy at the hospital came down to visit me because he's in this fellowship also and they were so impressed and they're still talking about it and it's been seven years later almost seven years later and they're still talking about it. every time I have to go there for anything they all still comment on what was going on with me it was amazing and you know what when I got here I didn't have a friend in the world so you know what uh, I'm real grateful to be standing up here tonight. I'm real grateful that I'm clean and sober. I'm real grateful that I found the sponsor that I have today, that the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and and the program has breathed new life into me this year. And I'm so grateful last year was a bad year for me. And it turned around New Year's Eve night this year, and you know what, I've had good days every day. And then some asshole had to remind me, it's only been a couple of weeks. You know what? Um, it's going to be a good year for me. I know it is, and uh, uh, and I can't say enough for this fellowship. And it's nothing that I've done here, from nothing that I've done. What I've done is managed, I've managed to show up. I managed to you know stay in these rooms, and that's probably the only thing I've ever done right in alcoholics anonymous. Is I just keep coming to meetings, and I don't drink and I don't use, them, no matter what, And no matter how I'm feeling, good or bad, and that I keep showing up here and I keep doing the deal. And nothing gives me greater pleasure than to see one of the guys that I have something to do with, I respond to, stand up at a podium or stand up in a meeting and get that 90-day chip. My 90-day chip means more to me than any year I've ever taken. Because when I was really getting clean and sober, 90 days looked like it was forever. You know what? And that's the chip I carry with me on my keychain today, my 90-day chip. Because literally, it meant more to me than any year I've ever had. And i got to remember that all I have is just this day. And that uh, this program will work for me as long as I want it to work, and not one day longer. That I have to stay in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous to be okay. And I and I have to give back and put back and give. And then the magic happens. And it's free. That's the nicest part about this deal. you know this deal is for free. You can't buy it. You can have it for free. In other words, I'd like to thank the secretary for inviting me down tonight, and thanks for letting me share.